Hello and welcome. This is the Climate Voices Podcast and I'm your host, Omesa Mokaya. That the international community accepts with a very high confidence that the global climate is rapidly changing and it understands its major causes and it's fully cognizant of what needs to be done in order to reverse the cause. It is beyond my or anyone's understanding what actually justifies the continuous and blatant delay or apathy in acting on the climate emergence with the urgency that it demands. At the recently concluded World Summit on Climate that is commonly referred to as COP27 that was held in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, the world congregated for the 28th time to hold discussions and negotiations about addressing the climate crisis One critical question that you might want to ask yourself, however, is was this conference really a success or was it another political gathering for people all over to meet and mingle and go back to maintaining their status quo? To answer this and address some other concerns of global importance that the world faces today, we are joined on the fifth episode of the Climate Voices podcast with Dr. Bright Nkuruma, who is a visiting assistant professor at the International Development Community and Environment at Kwaku University. Before joining the IDC, he was a Lauders Fellow at the Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society at the University of Munich. Dr. Nkuruma also served as a scholar activist at the Global Change Institute at the University of Witwatersrand and Center for Human Rights at the University of Pretoria. In November 2022, he was sworn in as the member of as a member of the board of directors of the African Studies Association. With over 18,000 members across six continents, Dr. Kuruma will be representing the interests of emerging scholars on the board. He has taught and published extensively on climate change, environmental movements, food insecurity, political contestation, minority rights, and democratization is the author of Seeking the Right to Food, Food Activism in South Africa with the Cambridge, with the 2021 Cambridge University Press. Dr. Nkrumah, welcome to the show. Could you briefly take us through your journey and your involvement in climate action thus far? Uh, thank you so much, Olmeza. Um, it's truly, um, really, you know, a very inspiring experience to see how you've managed to put um, this whole um, um, program together. I'm really, really excited because um, it's not often that you, you see young African, you know, men and women taking up the fight, you know, to, 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 to mitigate or in other words, to sort of draw attention to issues related to climate change. And then begging the question as to why should young Africans in the first place be involved or be concerned about climate change. And as many of you know, um, the IPCC, which is um, the, um, the Inter- Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a group of scientists um, within the UN system, their projection is that by 2050, if we do not take immediate steps to limit uh, emissions, then there is going to be massive drought, massive flood, which is going to impact on our access to food, access to water, housing, and most importantly, which generation, which kind of social um, group is going to be affected. It is young people. So it is very important that young people from the early stage take part or become involved in climate mitigation or climate-related issues. And that's why I'm so proud of Amaza for his amazing work within this um, arena. Um, having said that, um, my involvement within the climate um, realm um, spans back to um, 2017 when 
I was actually part of an European Union program which was called the FP7 um, and currently it's now the Horizon 2020. Um, so we were actually tasked to look at the impact of climate change on indigenous population and local communities within South Africa. So I conducted a survey and subsequently um, I got, I got a, um, a position at the University of East Waters Ranch to be exact within the, um, the Global Change Institute where I took up the mantle of training young people or youth to be very active in climate um, change situation um, arena. Subsequently, I was um, I had opportunity to also travel to Munich um, where I was based at the Richard Cassin Center for Environment and Society where we um, groomed um, young people, of course, also to also challenge the system and bring about reform within um, as to how the global north, to be, to be exact, how Germany can actually limit its um, emissions, particularly as Germany is known to, to rely mostly on coal to power its electricity. So um, a, a greater number of people, of young people, got so much involved within the climate um, um, cluster and often were actually mobilized to take to the street to protest and to draw attention to um, emissions. And at the moment, I'm here at um, Clark University where I occasionally speak to the students about climate change and I'm proud to say that Omeza is one of the vibrant and active students within the class with whom I'm proud to associate with. Thank you. You mentioned very critical issues that I consider very important and close to my heart and very fundamental in the battle against uh, you know, climate change, uh, you know, empowering the young people. What I've seen is uh, an issue, you know, a case where young people are reduced to, are relegated to activists, you know, that, that given activist roles, which I don't think is enough to have the change that we really want to see because the young people are the people who are threatened the most by the impacts of climate change. So you, I love that you've worked with the young people in South Africa and, um, you know, with the ongoing, with the just concluded conference of parties, we have seen young people voicing their concerns, you know, coming together in unison and saying enough is enough. We are tired of what the older generation is doing. They are not acting and they are trying to get their voices heard, but activist roles are not enough to have most of these changes realized. Dr. Bright, do you think this is enough? What, what is the main cause? What is the major impediment for not having the young people involved uh, in policy discussions? Because that's where the real change happens. The young people are not being involved in policy negotiations and policy discussions. Why is that the case? Is it that they lack the skills that are prerequisite in you know, being involved at this uh, at that kind of level? Mm, thank you so much, um, once again, Amiza, for this um, um, interesting question. And um, it, you know, like they say, that great minds think alike. Um, over the weekend, I was at the CCTED um, annual conference of the African Studies Association, ISA, and um, I presented a paper on this topic. And um, I had a professor from you know, from Harvard who actually asked a similar question. And the question that he posed was within the same. It you know it ties to what Omiza is asking, and also like regarding the, the relegation of young people within the policy arena. And um, I've, I've actually reflected on this same question sometime back in 2021, and this led to um, a publication of my publication of a paper called uh, Beyond Tokenism. And um, the paper actually explored this question. And one the quick, it was, the quick response to this question was that 
indeed young people are often given a tokenistic or are not genuinely involved in policy decision making and i reiterated that if it is young people who are going to bear the impact of climate change in the next 30 years to come then ultimately they have they have the legal right to be consulted or to be involved in terms of framing decisions that is going to impact on their lives because you cannot decide what how somebody is going to be impacted without genuinely involving the person and and the, so um in terms of trying to understand the nuances or the i mean the, the setback there were many issues that actually um came up to the fore and i will encourage you to go back and read that paper the beyond tokenism and some of the issues that actually um discovered within the paper was that first of all there are some young people who are who are sometimes and i'm using the word carefully sometimes invited to participate in policy decision however it will interest you to know that some of these young people are actually handpicked by um, the department of in, in most cases by the department of environment more often by the minister herself or himself or sometimes the young people from very affluent communities or families with ties to the regime so in, in most cases it is not really the young people the question is as to those who are really impacted who are often invited to speak um, about their situation and even in cases where these young people are handpicked they are often coached they are trained they are taught they are given handout as to what to speak at this conference or at these meetings so do not go they, they, so that they, they not often um, come to the table with genuine intention with a new commitment to speak about the issue on the table they often they just come there to, to simply affirm or to simply um, you know, raise their hands to support the motion being passed. And that is a, that's, a very, that's, that's worrying. And perhaps there is a need for us to look for a solution to, 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 you know, to turn this um, tide around. Otherwise, it will, it will continue to be a system. And, but the question is, uh, how do you um, shift? How do you shape the system? How do you reform the system? Ultimately, um, the system that we live in, as within, and when I say the system, we are talking about democratic society. In democratic society, you often have very few channels, and mostly it's either you go through the vote or through election, or either you consult, you go through the legal system, which is the court. And these are the two channels that we consider, we consider them to be conventional means of change. But the question is, uh, how many young people, and when you speak about young people, you are speaking about the youth. And within the UN system, a youth or a young person, somebody between the ages of 15 and 24. So, do this population have the, the I mean, have the the legal legs to stand on, to challenge the system, to challenge the government, to overthrow a system, often it's very difficult. At this point in time, the only remedy which I've always, um, so I've, I stand resolute and I stand committed is by using unconventional strategies, by mobilizing the young people through collective action. That is what I will actually ascribe to. But of course, there could be legal means which can be also can be explored. There could be the electoral system which can be explored. Uh, perhaps we can we can look at the feasibility of all these strategies and see how best we can actually integrate people to fight and to be genuinely involved. Beyond tokenism, it's actually a really interesting paper. I've had an opportunity of reading it and I encourage everyone, uh, you know, to look for it and read. So you raise you you say climate change and youth participation are an important clarion call today and what we are saying is um, the young people are actually relegated to this tokenistic role so how do we move beyond this tokenism how do we make sure that the young people are really 
making the impact are, are really you know making their voices count do you see any role of climate youth movements in this because what i've seen in the past again is the young people resulting to climate activism do you think climate youth, youth movements play an important role in addressing the climate crisis or should we continue pushing for the young people being involved in the real uh, you know policy discussions that they are not involved in at, at the moment thank you so much Amisa. you always ask very penetrating very um, controversial questions <laughs> <laughs> so yes um okay so it's been speaking about collective movement collective action or movement we i think from 2017 to COVID, we saw there was a rising movement of young people in most cases, often led by Rita Thunberg or Vanessa Nikita from Uganda. Uganda. Yes, and um, but then sadly, with the onset of COVID, it appears that this movement has somehow um, dissipated. Um, it appears the young people have lost their momentum, and that is a very sad trajectory. We hope that um, now that um, um, what you call another COVID, the rules have been relaxed, this momentum can be uh, regained. But um, having said that, um, within the years, within the almost um, three years that we saw the mobilization of young people, there was some kind of government um, commitment or shift to address climate change. So yes, climate movement has a potential of turning, the, uh, you know, of um, reforming and, and bringing about a sporadic or rapid um, shift to um, a carbon footprint. But having said that, we there is also a very worrying concern within the movement itself, and that is that in most cases you find you, you will notice that the rank and file of this climate movement is often composed of young people from affluent communities or from Afri affluent backgrounds. We do not see the young people from the marginalized, vulnerable communities. For instance, in the case of South Africa, we speak of Soweto, we speak of Alexandria, we speak of Sochenguvi. We speak of Guyani, you do not see these young people participating in climate movement or, we, or participating in, in mobilization. And I believe if you, if you look around you, wherever you stay in your communities, you see that those from very poor communities often do not participate when it comes to climate mobilization. And the question is why? Why are, why, are they relegated or it is just a non-challenge or it's just that they are simply not concerned about climate change? And perhaps one can just simply make allusion to certain um, observations. And the first one is that the young people who are being in these poor communities are often more concerned about social economic issues. And when I say that, it means that they are more concerned about their immediate pressing issues. For instance, a young person within the community of Soweto or within the community of um, um, Gubuletu is more concerned about the food that I can get now. Where am I going to get my next pack? Where am I going to get my next electricity because I can't afford? Where am I going to get my next medication because I'm, I'm not feeling well? How will I get um, access to how will I get access to school because I cannot even pay for my tuition fees at the university? So within this context, issues related to climate change or environment, which one can somehow place as a third generation right. Because ultimately, you have said you are first generation right being civil and political right, second generation being social economic, and third generation right being environmental. Issues related to environment often do not come as pressing to them as what they have to get now. 
The second challenge, which often make, which I can argue, is not so. It does not really entice young people to participate in climate movement. Is that climate change itself is not visible. It's difficult for one to commit to a cause when one cannot see that this violation is occurring. If you ask a one uh, in 2019, you conducted a survey in Johannesburg, and about almost 50 percent of the young people who claim that they do not know about climate change or they do not they are not so much aware of climate change is that they, 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 the argument was that they have not seen climate change. That perhaps if you can show them this is climate change, if you can prove to them this is drought, if you can prove to them that this flood is caused by climate change, then perhaps that would be um, a way for them to believe. And then the third aspect often relates to the to the denialist approach and that, that is that there is a a lot of denialism being paraded that even when flood occurs, it's not based, it's not because simply because of climate change. And then ultimately, the final argument could be tied to um, the advancement of scientific um, technology. That ultimately, in future, even if climate change hits or if there is a drought, there will be technological advancement to address this setback. So these are some of the issues that we as activists or we as um, policymakers ought to perhaps shift our attention to and try to use them as a launching bag um, or as a launching pad or um, as a, uh, you know, as an incentive to be able to um, really articulate among the impoverished communities for them to truly understand that in the years to come, if they do not participate or if they do not get involved now, it is, they will be, you know, the hardest hit by, um, by the impact of climate change. So we ought to be able to be uh, mobilized resources towards this direction. I pick a lot of things from what you're saying, you know, using technology, relying on technology to solve most of the environmental problems. It's what I, one Australian writer called John Dreiser calls Promethean approach or Promethean environmental discourses that tend to rely on technology to solve most of the environmental issues that we are facing today and which has actually not proven to be working efficiently. Or if it works, um, it, it you know kind of leads to um, some unintended consequences that no one ever looks at. So, and uh, when you're talking about you know some of the, these issues in South Africa, for instance, what I'm reading from that is um, you know a lot of uh, social justice issues, a lot of human issue, human rights issues that are tied to these, and uh, also like social injustices that you know societies face when you again tie these to what is happening not just within the youth demographic and try to look at it globally is uh, you know communities for example from the global south whose carbon footprint is kind of negligible and they have contributed the least you know to causing the impact of climate change but they are the people who are facing you know the most consequences do you think some of these communities for example from you know the small island developing nations from the global south in general from you know uh, sub-saharan africa from south america who have done the least you know to cause the you know um, to contribute to climate change you know taking equal measure with countries from the global north who did everything to cause this is it justice is, is this uh, you know because again climate justice is tied to human rights and is tied to you know, social justice issues. Is it fair for these communities from the global south who also need to develop to catch up with the rest of the global north? Thank you, Omeza. Um, this is a very um, 
you know in my culture in Ghana there is a saying they say that when a tree is stuck to um, a rock its cutting is very difficult you have to be careful when you're cutting the tree because otherwise you may end up um, um, sort of uh, cutting into the rock itself so <laughs> I'll expand on this so um, we are uh, when I speak, when I say we, we're speaking of those in the global south, and by extension, or uh, we mean particularly those in Africa, Asia, South, um, South America, and um, often the, the ones in the global south are the least developed and the least emitters of of um, emissions. But um, and ultimately, the ones in the north are the highest emitters and advanced um, countries. But the question that you are asking a very difficult question in terms of should we adopt similar measures in terms of mitigation, or one ought to be given some form of allowance to emit um, to emit um, the equal amount which the, the appears in the North emitting? I will adopt a very moderate approach um, to this um, response, and I say this with caution, simply because, um, of course, the general argument will be that within the realm of due diligence. Or within the realm of proportionality, it will be um, legitimate, or it will be um, it will be prudent, or it will be um, it will it will fall within the logic of um, within a reasonable um, I mean allowance for those in the south to emit to continue emitting because they have not taken I mean uh, absorbed or they have not used up utilized their portion. So because for instance the world as in the atmosphere is like a cake where we split into different parts. So if the ones in the, in the north have taken more than their share, then perhaps we need to recoup it. We need to take back our share. But I wouldn't advise within this direction. What, I, what I'm sorry to interrupt. I mean, um, I know like according to the, the UN spatial procedures of the you know, human rights, the right to develop is one of the rights for the for everyone it doesn't exclusively you know cut out on some of the regions to develop i mean is it possible to have this transition that we're talking about in addressing climate change without necessarily having these people in the global south to have to develop to lift themselves out of poverty and what we have seen from the past is that development is totally linked to consumption of fossil fuels, for instance, and the rest of the global north actually used that to develop, but the, for the global south who haven't used, actually their global carbon footprint is, is very minimal compared to the rest of the global north. So how do we make sure that the global south gets the justice they need in terms of lifting themselves out of poverty and uh, having, you know, the, the right to quality life without, while at the same time addressing climate change. Thank you so much, um, Omeza. I do understand your sentiment and I share your frustration. But um, having said that, the concept of development in itself is well captured by Article 25 of the African Charter on, on um, Human and People's Rights. Mm. And it actually imposes an obligation on all African countries. And I presume, um, and I presume the Asian, I mean, Asians and South Americans might also have similar human rights instrument. And within the African Charter, within the African countries, the Article 25 imposes an obligation on African states to ensure, or to, to ensure that their citizens enjoy the full enjoyment of, of the right to development. And when you speak of development, 
it it um it has a very broad scope. It means having access to quality water, having access to um, uh, adequate food, yes. hospital, um, good roads, um, housing. So it's very it has a very broad, massive um, um, what you call definition. But you made reference to um, development within the global north, and I believe in your eyes. Um, if we should adopt a very narrow, de I mean, definition, perhaps it might mean industrialization. And um, but the question we ought to ask ourselves is that within the industrial, um, within the uh, the system of the industrial revolution, which dates back um, to the 17th century, there was, of course, the use massive amount of um, of um, coal and related um, fossil fuels, which um, has resulted in the current. Um, um, state of climate change and we've actually seen that the impacts in recent times resulted in a massive flood in South Africa to be exact in KwaZulu-Natal where more than 200 people lost their lives. So yes of course um, we should be able to use some form and uh, to some extent amount of coal to power or to enable us to industrialize but can one industrialize without using coal? Can one industrialize without using excessive amount of fossil fuel? I believe in our traditional system, and I believe in indigenous um, knowledge, we have many ways or means of industrializing. What do you mean by industrialization? And I believe within the African countries, industrialization does not simply mean the production of massive cars or tanks. No. That we have been developing since, the, since antiquity. Of great great I mean, I mean grandfathers have different ways of, of assisting us, of enabling us to be able to tap into our own resources to provide the schools, to provide uh, our informal system of education, to provide us with with hospital. In the hospital those days was the use of herbs. To that extent, I will not advocate for us looking for means of expanding on the use of fossil fuel, because that is not how we lived hundreds of thousands of years of ago years of ago we lived as very simple modest you know um people and perhaps we should go back to our traditional way of living which i presume and i believe is not over reliance on fossil fuels thank you yeah thank you so much that's a very um strong message that you're putting across in terms of you know the countries trying to leave themselves out of poverty without necessarily using the path that was used uh by the other countries that are already developed. So uh, with the climate uh, negotiations that have recently been concluded in the, in, in, in the COP27 in Egypt, the global north, as we say, had an obligation of helping these countries in the global south to lift themselves out of the impacts they are facing for uh, you know, the climate change that they did little in contributing to. So we, you've seen the African you know, delegation speak strongly in the past and during the conference uh, about the establishment of the loss and damage fund to help them adapt to the impacts of climate change. So do you think uh, the COP was a success to that effect? Thank you, Omeza. Um, you are, as, a, as, as always, you are one of the most um, brilliant and insightful students that I've actually encountered. So thank you for that question. So the question of um, the loss and damage, yes, I actually applaud the elders for for agreeing and for conceding to the establishment of this fund. But I'm still a bit skeptical about such a, such a fund, and and that's simply because um, perhaps 
there should have been talks more about mitigation rather than establishing funds to compensate because ultimately there was much talk about the loss and damage but less about mitigation which is very unfortunate and i think that's the one one major setback to this conference so in my eyes the conference was another talk shop without any concrete you know um means or measure as to how to mitigate so that is my my major disappointment when it comes to the i mean to the cop and of course i it, it is to be expected because um as always africans we are always the i mean the weaklings when it comes to this negotiation our points are not taken seriously and the question is that why is it so i will not blame the the, the global north for for taking this position i think as africans we brought this upon ourselves if you look within if let's if you take us if you scan the landscape of africa the, you know what which kind of leaders do we have on the continent if you look back in the 1950s and 1960s the kind of leaders that africa had if you look within uh, heroes such as um jomo kenyatta if you look at heroes such as kwame Nkrumah, if you look at uh, heroes such as namdin Azikwe. If you look at his heroes such as um, Selassie of Ethiopia, if you look at heroes that we've had in the past and if you compare them to what we have now, I'm sorry to say we do have puppets who are only there to uh, to do the bidding of, of their masters in the global north. And therefore they only go there and then that is why I'm skeptical about this loss and, fund, uh, loss and damage fund. Because in the end, the money will come in and it will only be shipped back to Swiss bank account to be stored for the retirement of these leaders. So I'm not truly convinced that this loss and damage fund is going to trickle down to the ordinary person on the ground who is actually going to be impacted by the emissions in the north. So fund funding is uh, actually to me is an insult to the ordinary person who is going to bear the brunt or the impact of climate change. And I think so to that to, to that end, I think the COP in itself was a failure, nothing more. Yeah. So what I'm taking from that is um, these conferences are just like political uh, meetings where people are meeting and discussing, but nothing really concrete comes out of it. I share your sentiments about the African leaders. Uh, we actually, from from the conference of parties, we see African delegations making like part of the largest delegations to the you know most of these conferences, but without necessarily. Uh, uh, you know, bringing, uh, adding value to the discussions or the negotiations that are happening. And it takes me back to the point that you mentioned about uh, tokenistic roles, uh, you know, um, assigned to the young people. This is a case where we see governments from African countries carrying a lot of, you know, young people to the conferences to see that or to appear that the young people are being involved, but actually they're just there to like spending taxpayers' money, you know, a lot of money for a couple of weeks outside the country but not necessarily uh, you know negotiating for what is actually affecting the people so um what i'm actually picking again is that uh even if the fund is established but without proper mechanisms to ensure that it actually goes it's where it's supposed to be then it's it's not uh fit for purpose it's not going to meet the what it what it's actually meant to to do in terms of addressing the people's vulnerabilities and one, one thing I also uh, want to talk about how addressing climate change might lead to other unintended uh, you know, consequences. For example, you talked about technology. Uh, the Global North, for example, is talking about things like carbon capture and storage. 
are trying to reduce uh, to cut emissions on carbon do you think technology might lead to some unintended consequences on especially communities that are not looked at at the moment thank you so much Amazing. because we are, we have for example like fr- frameworks like uh, the UN uh, United Nations framework convention on climate change clean development mechanism and the red plus projects which are usually like implemented at the com- at the grassroots levels for example in the global south you know reduction of forest emissions from uh, deforestation and forest degradation you know do you think some of those uh, projects might lead to some unintended consequences for example you talked about something about uh, the right to food uh, i believe through the red plus we have seen uh, you know aspects of people growing food people are struggling to you know address food insecurity but through the use of biofuels for example you see where crops are being grown for biofuels and it's competing for production of food for feeding the people as opposed to co- production of crops for you know producing biofuels so are those some of the unintended consequences that you see might come out of this mm, thank you so much once again Amiza. so the question is um we have the UN Framework Convention, as you mentioned, you have the RED, we have the Paru Agreement, you have the Kyoto Protocol, we have, and the list goes on, on and on and on and on and on. And I can tell you this, if truly the ones who are emitting had the political commitment to emit, there will be no need for a chain of legislations. You only adopt numerous legislations when you are confused, when you don't really know what you are about or when you don't truly know you don't want to stop emitting then you are bound to adopt a lot of laws and if you look if you go through these all these documents they all speak the same language it's, it's just it's a, just a matter of political will and i remember there was a time back in when i was um, just a master student and i went to a presenter at a conference and one professor i remember him very well he was there and then he asked me i mentioned the issue of political will. he said right every conference all that i go and i hear when i go all that i hear is political will. what is this animal called political will? it is a lack of an unwillingness by policymakers within these institutions to be able to to limit or to diversify from their conventional source of energy so then i ask you again why is it so difficult for the can- for countries in the global north just to simply diversify from their conventional source of energy they they have developed the technology they understand that there is different sources of um, renewables there is wind which is blowing freely there is sun and these are s- simple with simple technologies one can be able to tap these energies and use them without using coal and as you realize in recent in recent in, in the recent past after Russia, um, Russia's um, inversion of, of Ukraine. Ukraine, countries in the north are actually, instead of shifting from the dependency on oil to other renewables, are actually looking for le- new lands to explore. Germany, of course, hit um, Senegal. France, uh, um, um, UK has actually taken a, a swing at Saudi Arabia. So all these countries are looking for new means of tapping into what is known as a harmful source of energy. Without making or limit without without with less effort towards considering renewable. So, all these uh, big terms such as biofuel, such as carbon capture, such as these big jargons. When I throw it at my grandmother, she was asking me, "What does this mean? What is this?" To the ordinary person on the street who who, who has not been to the university, what will this word mean to such a person? I think we only come up with all these technological. Um, you know a cliche to confuse and to frustrate the weaker countries i think the burden falls on these global north countries or countries in the global north for them to simply diversify from the conventional source of energy which is coal and oil 
and I presume with these, with these, um, if they are able to diversify, if they are able to shift to a much more renewable source of livelihood, of of um, of a sustenance, then the impact will not be so you know heavy. Will not be heavily felt by those in the south, particularly the ones in the village. As we speak, part of Sudan is actually experiencing drought. Cattle are dying on the field. The seeds, maize, are no, the seeds are not germinating. So what is going to happen to the poor farmer? Is the poor farmer going to receive compensation from this loss and damage? Is the poor cattle herder going to receive some form of a compensation? Because ultimately when the water, when the, when, when the water, when the river dries up, the cattle will not have anywhere to be able to drink, the, to get water. So it, when we speak about this, the need for us to be able to address climate change, we shouldn't look always at the at the bigger picture. We should look at the person on the ground, the most vulnerable person who does not truly benefit from these um, big jargons being paraded at, at the cop, but the person who but still suffers the impact and is suffering in silence. So I think that's to some extent it brings in the question of moral obligation. Because at the moment, there is nothing like a binding legal instrument which binds countries in the north for them to provide funding for that poor old woman in the village who is growing tomatoes. No. But if we can actually invoke a moral obligation, some sort of a moral sympathy for those in the north to be, to have to be, some, to be very sympathetic to the ones, the poor individual at a grassroots level, perhaps that can be a, a form of um, um, incentive for them to be able to cut back on their, on their emissions. Because... As it stands now, that is the only means we can use because there isn't any binding legal obligation for the countries in the north to cut back on their emissions. Yeah, I share your frustration about this. actually don't like some of the text that is being used. For example, calling this fund a compensation fund rather than, you know, an adaptation fund because I believe most of the African countries or most of the countries that are actually in a actually negotiating for this fund they were actually negotiating for a loss and damage fund to help them adapt or you know adapt to the impacts of climate change so calling it uh, compensation fund doesn't necessarily meet the purpose that is meant to you know achieve what we have seen again uh, from this conversation is this lack of commitment from the countries which had, have you know been involved the most uh, countries from the global not failing to commit uh, to tackle the impacts of climate change by committing to, you know, contributing to this fund. For example, shying away from saying or using the text face out, complete face out of fossil fuels or like, for example, coal power, but instead choosing carefully, you know, what's like face down such that it allows that window of opportunity uh, for continuous exploration of, you know, a possible oil and gas fields in Africa because this lack of oil, Russian oil with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So as we speak with the lack of commitment, the next venue, you know, for the next conference of parties is already decided. So with this lack of commitment, is it that the countries don't want to commit and once and for all deal with these issues and say, we are, tr we are moving forward and we are addressing the global goals that have been met of you know, limiting warming to below 1.5 degrees above the pre-industrial level. So with this kind of you know, lack of commitment and also trying to hoodwink most of the countries from Africa through uh, bilateral trade negotiations to continue exploring the dirty you know, fossil fuels that the rest of the world is actually supposed to moving away from this makes the challenge to lift the people out of 
poverty and to achieve their national development goals without use of fossil fuels are very very daunting task developing countries to uh, you know to face what what is the future what was what are we supposed to do so um you made a very valid point um that is that african for instance the weaker countries are still being um roped in or reined in to succumb to to the homes and caprices of the north and um, you rightly mentioned the instance of some countries in the north um, building uh, stronger ties with um, some African countries for purposes of uh, um, continuing dependence or exploring their oil and gas. And as we, as we saw not long ago that um, Germany is actually now building stronger ties with Senegal yeah. for purposes of actually extracting oil and uh, being used for its um, indigenous. Some people have actually called some of these ad approaches as you know, some form of neocolonialist approaches too. Yes, that is true. And then of course, to buttress that point, even some countries, for instance with China, buying you know, large plots of land in Africa for purposes of biofuels, where um, some maize and other crops and sorghums are planted and shipped back to be used to, for the generation of um, energy sources. Whereas you'll find some villages around the neighborhood who are starving and even do not have access to food. But the question is that, should we blame the countries in the north or should we blame China? The countries in the north will not have access to our oil as Africans if we do not allow them, if we do not permit them. China will not come and take our land through the use of force if we do not succumb, if we do not invite them, if we do not enter into treaties with them. So we have actually opened our doors and embraced them and hugged them. We've, in some instances, even I can tell you that even when it comes to the land allocation, some countries, for instance, in Ethiopia, where, and even you go to Equatorial, Equatorial Guinea, a plot of land, often one hectare of land, is actually allocated to China for a price of one dollar for 99 years. That is the lease. So a whole hectare is, is actually allocated to a country for 99 years and for a price of one dollar per year. Now you must, you should ask yourself, if you as a local indigent in Equatorial mm -hmm. Guinea, you want a plot of land, a hectare of land, how much will the, will the government sell it to you? And even in some countries, in our African countries, what they do is that they have actually created a, a database of fertile lands on our continent where it is actually being displayed on our government website and inviting investors. These are, these are fertile lands, come and take them. And also they, have, they also attach a caveat, and that is that when you come, we will ensure that you and your citizens have easy access. You have, if we fast track your, your, visa, your visa applications. You will ensure that you're able to ship your profit without taxes, and all in the name of inviting investors. So we, I, this new form of new um, colonialism, or some called new imperialist um, regime, will not happen if we do not invite the colonialists back into our realm. So if we are suffering, if in my country they say, if there is something biting you, you should look within your, your attire. It is within your attire. We are actually causing our, our own mayhem, or our own um, struggles. So when you say we, is it based on the policies that we have or is it on our leaders? Of course, you cannot have policies without the, the policy framers or the policy makers. 
and who are the framers of our policies who are the leaders it's our mps it's our, our, it's our executives they sit and they, they, they draft these legislations so there comes a time where the citizens ought to say enough is enough and should be able to rise up and mobilize as we speak for instance in ghana you may go and buy um, a two kilogram of rice for fifty dollars today you go tomorrow that price is hundred dollars double the price and sadly we often say that as africans we are non-militant we are conformist and that ought to change there should become a time where we should see a revolution we should see a reawakening of the citizens for them to be able to take up the reins of power and be able to say enough is enough to our corrupt leaders because without that then this talks about climate change this continual talks about cop I see to me it's a, it's a, it's a group of um, well-known individuals who come together just to drink coffee and party and go back home without any concrete measures being taken. So if we truly are serious about addressing climate change, then we, as, in, as for instance, number one, as Africans, we should be able to stand on our feet and perhaps refuse to sell fossil fuels to countries which are going to use them and ultimately we are going to suffer the impact. And I think, so it's it, 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 it actually, in, a, in the end, it means that the onus lies on us if we are going to address climate change. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, what I'm seeing is in this is opportunities for young people. As we have seen, our leaders are not doing anything in, a, in addressing our you know challenges. Our future is very threatened, and we need to stand up and take the mantle from the old people who are actually failing us. So any young person out there who is feeling frustrated, just like myself, it's our time to take the mantle. In, and we are not going to be taking tokenistic roles that Dr. Kuruma talks about. We are going to snatch it from the older generation. If they are not giving us, we are taking it. We are creating our own space and we are taking the space. So it's a call to action for young people to step up. And in whichever way you can, let's step up and let's make the change that we need to see. Yeah, Dr. Bright, do you have any call to action that you want to make to the leaders, the policymakers, the young people, whoever you want to speak to out there? Um, thank you um, so much, Omeza. So, um, to conclude this discussion, I have to say that um, it is a very sorry state when one looks, when one scans um, the scope of Africa, because although we do have limited resources to adapt to climate change, when it hits us, as we witnessed in South Africa, in Kwaduzulata, where 200 people were drowned due to a flood, we are still witnessing a stream of African countries which are now gradually shifting towards the use of coal as their main source of electricity. We can see this pattern growing, particularly in Southern Africa. Many countries in the SADC are now actually trying to replicate what South Africa is doing by building coal power plants as their major source of electricity. I have to say this, that we, in as much as you draw lessons from South Africa to power your electricity, you should also draw lessons from South Africa for how its citizens in KwaZulu-Natal suffered when climate change struck. Please, let's look for much more renewable, cleaner way of powering our electricity. Because in the end, when we are hit by flood, when we are hit by drought, I can promise you, as a leader in Africa, the people will come for your head. And 
This is actually, it ca and then this was actually replicated sometime back in 2021 when citizens in South Africa took to the street and looted shopping malls. With such an uprising, if you do not stand your ground, you can be overthrown. And I'm not saying this can happen or this is a call for action, but there has been a range of coup d'etat which has been, which have been, um, which are raging through Africa. And this is just a reflection of bad leadership. I will not call for coup. It is not um, a civilized way of governance. But where our leaders fail to act, where our leaders fail to protect our interests, then within that context, they have breached our social contract. They have breached the trust that we actually place in them for them to be able to safeguard our interests. And where such a leader is not capable or is unwilling to safeguard our interests, it means that that leader is not worthy of our trust. And to that extent, the citizens will mobilize and ask you to leave office, whether through legitimate means or illegitimate means. Whichever, would, whichever takes precedence, that will be based on your action. So to the young people, I would advise you that from time, from often, of time to time, try and be active when it comes to climate um, mobilization, when it comes to climate deb debate, when it comes to climate negotiations. Even where you are maligned, even where you are actually relegated, find a way to be able to articulate your perspective. You can use social media, you can take to the streets, you can use placards, you can do sit-ins. Whichever avenue is available to you, try and use it because in the end, you will be the one to suffer the impact of climate change when it sits, particularly in the years to come. Thank you. Thank you, very strong message there. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, there is need to you know, rethink and frame climate policy in an intersectional manner such that you know it's centered around equity and justice and job creation and this is the time for young people to lead that that conversation is the time for young people to lead that effort so thank you so much it's been amazing having you on the show dr bright thank you for your amazing contribution yeah so um i encourage you to keep tuning in and subscribe to our channels so that you'll be getting amazing conversations that we'll be having with future guests uh, such as Dr. Bright. And of course to mention that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not necessarily um, reflect the views or positions of the entities affiliated with. Yeah, so until next time, this is the Climate Voices Podcast. <laughs>